Good morning. Glad you're here this morning. We are jumping right back in to Matthew 5 through 7. If you want to be turning that way in your Bible or on your devices, this is Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Um, probably the most famous sermon that he preached. And as we read through it, you may hear lots of little snippets that are even common in our culture now uh, outside of religious circles that you may not have realized actually come from the Sermon on the Mount. It's amazing how much Jesus has influenced our thinking about teaching and morality and ethics in general, whether it's people who truly do know him and are following him spiritually or just people who that's kind of soaked into our culture over time. And so you can be listening for those. But as far as last week went, um, can you even imagine if I tried to let you all talk for those of you that were here, <laughs> I had a goal to try to do an introduction and summarize the whole thing, and we made it halfway through uh, just with me talking, and so sorry that I wasn't able to move more quickly, but we just cut it off. We're going to pick up there again. So if you, if you weren't with us last week and you're interested in hearing the first half, you're welcome to go back on the website or uh, we also have the, the recording of the whole live stream on YouTube that you can watch the whole thing there, um, but just the, as far as the sermon part on our website, and you can listen to that. I'll try to recap it a little bit, um, but not going to spend as much time on that first half so that hopefully we can get to the second half today. Uh, but yeah, I had a lot more to say last week, and I know that you've probably got stuff to say already. I hope that you're seeing things as we read through it, but we're going to do that same thing again today. I'm going to pray for us right now. Um, and pray that God will teach us by his spirit as only he can, that this won't just be human time and it won't just be my words or my thoughts and it won't just be you know, your intelligence and your study of this passage. We can get all that on a human level and nothing that really needs to happen in our hearts and lives will happen unless the spirit of God is doing a work that only he can do. And I think it's just really important for us to acknowledge that together and also to come humbly and confess that we don't have the power and the ability to do the things like for me to do it in your heart or in my heart, for you to do it in your own heart or in each other's hearts, that we are dependent on God for that and we are looking to him for that, we are trusting him for that. And that's why we come together and pray, just to remind ourselves of that and then to honestly ask him to do what only he can do. So I'm going to pray for us. I am going to read the whole sermon again today. I think it's worth hearing it uh, the way that Jesus taught it, the way that Matthew has recorded it. So we'll read the whole thing. And as you're listening, again, you can go ahead and start taking your notes of what does this teach us about God, things that stand out to you. And I promise you at some point I'll get done with the intro and we'll get around to you sharing those truths. We will go back like a chunk at a time. I'm thinking you know, maybe two weeks in chapter five, two weeks in chapter six, two weeks in chapter seven, and then depending on what God is saying to you and through you, we can spend more time in some of those sections if we need to. Um, and so go ahead and be taking those notes and writing down the truths God's teaching you, and I can't wait to hear what you have to say. Um, I really do look forward to that even more than what I think God's telling me to say. And so, again, we'll pick back up. I'll try to recap more quickly, and we'll try to wrap up this intro this week. But will you pray with me right now as we jump in? Father, thank you for this time right now. Please teach us by your spirit from your word as only you can. Open up the truth of your word to us and open us up to the truth of your word. Help us see you and know you more in these words that Jesus spoke 
while he lived on this earth. Work in our hearts to hear not just what he's saying, but what he means for us as his followers, as your people, as, as people who have been accepted into your kingdom by your grace. And Father, I ask that you will work in our hearts so that this will be more and more of who we become as Jesus lives in us by his spirit, that you would make these things true of us and that you would give us what we need from you spiritually to be the type of people that you're calling us to be for your glory so that people will praise your name, that they would see you at work when you're producing your good works in us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, and I'm going to back up again just like we did last week and start near the end of chapter 4 because I think it's worth seeing again what Matthew had written right before we're headed into the Sermon on the Mount. I left all of our markings and stuff too, like we're for real just picking up in part two right here. And as we go along a little bit, I'll just point out a few of those things. But starting in chapter 4, verse 18. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. And I pointed out last week, and you see it marked there, that we've got four different times here with Peter and Andrew, Jesus saying, follow me. And then Matthew emphasizes they left everything and followed him. And then with James and John, they followed him. And then these crowds, they're coming and following Jesus now. And so Matthew's putting this emphasis on people coming to follow Jesus, Jesus calling them to follow him, them leaving everything to follow him, them following him to hear what he's saying, following him to be healed. And so this huge crowd is following him now, and that moves us into chapter 5. and says, now when Jesus saw these crowds, So these crowds are coming and following him. He looks up and sees the crowds. And this sermon is what he has to say to the people who are starting to follow him. And so I suggested that one way to think about the Sermon on the Mount to help you as you read it, to think about what Jesus is emphasizing here, is that he's looking at people who are coming to follow him, interested in following him, curious about following him, kind of take this first step of following him. And he's saying, this is what it means to follow me. Let me clarify. If you're going to follow me, let me teach and make sure you understand who you're following and what it means to follow me, what it is that I would be calling you to, what what it's like to be one of my followers. And then I pointed out last week, and I think you'll see it again as we read through here, he makes a huge distinction in the whole sermon between following him and following the typical religions of the world. 
that, that Jesus is introducing something radically new and radically different than any human religion or man-centered religion or man-made religion that you've ever known, that following Jesus is somehow, and, and you'll see the emphasis marked over and over and over, about the kingdom of heaven and his Father who is in heaven, and these heavenly things, these spiritual things that are greater and more important and more lasting and more significant than everything on earth, that following him is a reorienting of your entire life and your entire heart from the things of this world to his things, the things of heaven, spiritual things. And so we're going to look, we started last week looking at this contrast between typical worldly religion and, and religious righteousness that we usually find in people versus this new thing that Jesus is calling us to, this bigger and greater thing that he defines in this sermon. So here's what he says. Now, when, the, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Therefore, <clears throat> neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you've paid the last penny. 
You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It's been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. You've heard that it was said eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray... Do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they'll be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. When you fast, 
Do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask Him? So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. 
Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear good, bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. All right. And again, I know there is a ton in there. Jesus is the greatest teacher who has ever walked on the face of the earth. And this is kind of his most comprehensive sermon uh, that we have in the New Testament. And so there's no way for us to digest all of that. Obviously in one week, proved that last week, <laughs> but not even in two weeks. And so I know that we're still going to leave a lot out, mainly just overview and introduction right now, just trying to help us orient ourselves to the whole sermon so that when we go back and look at each piece, we've kind of got the big picture to help remind us of how we should be thinking about each piece. And you saw as we walked through there how often he puts this emphasis on the kingdom of heaven, your father in heaven, uh, the, the store up treasures in heaven, just over and over, various ways of emphasizing that his kingdom is a kingdom that's not of this world and that his kingdom's drastically different than the kingdoms of this world. And I pointed out this verse 20 here in, in chapter 5 last week to you as the way that he sort of most drastically sets apart his kingdom from the religious kingdoms of this world when he says, For I tell you that, you're righteous, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And last week, just in case you weren't with us or in case you've forgotten, I, I pointed out that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, even though for those of us that are kind of in church circles, Bible circles a lot today, like we think of them as the bad guys, you know, the villains who are always opposed to Jesus and arguing with Jesus and disagreeing with Jesus, and they eventually got Jesus arrested and had him crucified. And, and all that is true, and that, that is how they 
responded to Jesus the majority of the time for the majority of them. But you have to realize that in that day, they were the religious leaders. They were the most righteous religious people that anybody in Israel would have known. They were the people who were keeping God's law the most. Like when you looked at them on the outside, they looked the best. They looked the holiest. They looked the most righteous. A lot of them probably had pretty much the entire Old Testament memorized. Like they could quote any part to you. And Jesus talks to, about how they were giving generously and extravagantly and everybody saw their giving. They were praying out loud and using all their big fancy theological words and praying these prayers that sounded really impressive so that everybody else is looking at them and thinking look how great they are look how holy they must be they know all these things about God and they know all the right things to say and they're always praying look what they're doing maybe we need to be more like them and they would fast regularly they had a, a twice a week schedule but then they would make themselves look really hungry and really worn out so everybody knew they were fasting they were doing all these religious things and i tried to say last week you know imagine the people in the church that you look at who are serving in every ministry that you can think of and they're always here and they're really really committed in their attendance and they give faithfully and they they do all the things that we would ask them to do and you look at their life and you don't see any really visible spectacular sins that would make you think, oh, this is really wrong. Everything in their life looks right, looks good, and we would celebrate them and lift them up and be like, hey, this is the ideal church member. That's what the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were. And Jesus, this guy who's not a religious leader, right, not a Pharisee, not a teacher of the law, as far as they know, just a carpenter from Nazareth, he comes on the scene and he's doing things they've never seen before, first of all. Like the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, for all their authority, they're not healing people. They're not casting out demons. They're, they're not healing the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. And Matthew told us right there when the crowds start following him, he's doing those things, which is part of the reason you get to the end of chapter 7, and it says that he taught in a way they'd never heard before, not like the teachers of the law. That he had an authority they hadn't seen before. So they see this guy show up who's doing all this stuff that they've never done, and these people start following him, and he turns around to start teaching them. And he's like, here's what I want you to know about my kingdom. The kingdom that does this kind of stuff, the kingdom that heals broken people, the kingdom that restores things that are sick and broken, the king of that kingdom, here's what I want you to know. If you're going to follow me, you have to be more righteous than the most righteous people you know. The standards in my kingdom are higher than you've ever dreamed. Because you think about the most righteous people you know, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the ones who look the most religious, the most committed, the holiest, who do all the things right, who get it right, who do everything you think they should do, they're not getting into my kingdom. It's not enough. The absolute best that human righteousness and human effort could offer, Jesus says, it is not enough for my kingdom. And listen, that is staggering if we really listen to him. And the only reason it's not staggering is because how much we numb ourselves to what Jesus is really saying sometimes. And we think, what I'm doing is pretty good. What I'm offering God, it's, it's, it's good. There's more good than there is bad. That is not the way he evaluates you. There is no human standard of righteousness that measures up in his kingdom. There is your Father in heaven who is perfect, and he calls his children to be perfect. 
and he shows up and he says, the very best that you know, they're not that. They, they don't measure up to my father's standard. They aren't perfect. And so you've got a, a king who shows up on the scene and he says, my kingdom's greater than everything, anything you've ever imagined. My standards are higher than anything you've ever imagined. Take the very best that you could ever offer humanly, and it's not enough for my kingdom. Human effort will not be how you get in. Human righteousness will not be how you get in. Your determination and dedication and consistency and obedience, all the things that you could offer in and of yourself, it won't be enough. You can be the best of the best at it, and you'll be least in my kingdom. And so then, from that, that moment right there in verse 20, as you read through the rest of the sermon, he gives all these examples of why that's the case, of what he means, of, of what typical human religious righteousness looks like, but then why the standard in his kingdom is higher and how it's different. And so I was trying to get through 10 of them last week. We made it through five. I'm going to recap those five, and then we'll add the last five, and that's, that's going to be our day. I hope that as you watch this, as you see the distinction that Jesus makes, that first of all, that he'll be working in your heart to set you free from what's become this left-hand column for us, like just typical human righteousness that we produce on our own, in our own effort, by our own abilities, that it comes from us, that he would be setting us free from that, and that we would look at that and we would know that's not enough. Like if that's what I offer to God, it's not enough. But then also that he would be drawing you to what's become the right-hand column over here where he's saying, this is the work that I'll do inside my people by my spirit. These are the things that I will produce in you if you will give yourself to me and you will trust me and you'll depend on me. Like if you're the source, this is the best you can get and it's not good enough. But if I'm the source, I can do in you what you need and I'll give it to you. And so I hope that you're seeing that and I hope on top of that, that it does drive all of us to say, Jesus is my only hope. Jesus is the only answer. There's nothing I can do on my own that gets me in. There's nothing I can do that's good enough. The most religious of the religious aren't good enough. But Jesus is. You know, when we get to that last section there in chapter 7, and he says, listen, the way in is really, really narrow. And very few find it. The road, like it, it, this, this road to get into my kingdom, like it, it's so narrow that almost nobody gets there. In John, he's really specific about what that road is. In John 14, he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Like Jesus is saying, the way into my kingdom is so narrow, there's only one way, and I am that way. Like you will either trust me and depend on me and rely on me and turn to me and I will get you in or you won't get in. There's no other way to get in but Jesus. And so as we walk through this, it's okay. I, I feel this anyway. And it's okay if when we do this left-hand column, you do feel this sense of I've lived so much of my life here. I, I've tried to do these things. Like, this sounds like me. This sounds like my life. This sounds like what I do. And Jesus is saying, these things aren't enough. If you feel that, that's a good start in response to his sermon. Because what he's doing is he's rescuing you from that. He's saying, hey, this is where you would naturally be. And I've come to tell you, don't stay there. That won't get you in. Die to that. 
Leave that behind and come find me. Come follow me. Let me show you the one way in. Let me show myself to you. So some of the distinctions he draws here, and I, and I call this left column religious righteousness, because you know, we're saying the righteousness of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, and, and it's following all the rules. The first thing is that it, it only focuses on external behavior. And one of the ways to see that, I'm not going to scroll all day today because it's three chapters and it makes you dizzy and sick when I scroll a lot. So I'm just going to read off here for the references the rest of the way. But one of the ways he emphasizes that external behavior, verse 21, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder. So you know, visibly, externally, we can see it, don't kill people. You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. That's verse 27. It's been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. In other words, have a good legal reason to get divorced. That's verse 31. Verse 33, you've heard that it was said, do not break your oath. So when you publicly make an oath and speak out loud, make sure you keep those. Verse 38, you've heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. In other words, when you can see that you've been, you've been wronged, well, then seek justice. Strict, <laughs> vicious justice in response to what's been done to you. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. In other words, the way that you'd expect their, they, they do good to you, do good to them. They do bad to you, do bad to them. All this external stuff that seems justifiable, that looks good on the outside, it's the type of behaviors we would expect from typical people. And Jesus says, but I tell you, none of that's enough. With every one of those, and listen, he's quoting things from the Old Testament that God had said to Israel. When God says, do not murder, he means that. Right? It's good to follow that. But Jesus says, just following that on the outside, not enough. Do not commit adultery, it's good to follow that. But just following that on the outside, it's not enough. Don't break your oaths, it's good to follow that. But just following that on the outside, it's not enough. Over and over and over, he keeps raising the bar. So you've heard that it was said, do not murder, but I tell you, anyone who's angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. And so maybe you never, ever murder. Most of you probably won't. For how many of you is that because your heart is so pure and so loving that you never have anger that you want to take out on other people? Is that why you don't murder, if you're being honest? Nope, my hand's not up either, by the way. You know, you know why most of us don't murder? I'll give you a listing. Number one, you never have the opportunity. <laughs> In the moments you're mad, there's too many people around, and you don't have the right weapon. Number two, you don't think you can get away with it. And the punishment is more than it's worth to you. Do you think that's real holiness? Like, when those are the type of reasons why you don't do something, is that a heart that looks like Jesus? Seriously. He says, here's what it looks like in my kingdom. If you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you. And so now we're not even at the place where you're angry at somebody or angry enough that you want to murder them. He's like, you realize they've got something against you. And relationship and restoration and reconciliation matters so much to you. Your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. So here's the standard for my kingdom. It's the type of forgiveness and grace that pursues reconciliation with people. And if you think that just not murdering is the same as that, 
that you can be angry with these people and you can hate these people and resent these people and be bitter toward these people and judge these people and cut these people off and push these people away and write these people off and you can get into my kingdom just because you didn't kill somebody? I mean, do you hear what he's saying here to us? He's saying, do you love people in your heart? Do you pursue grace with people in your heart? Do you forgive people from your heart? Do you reconcile with people? And in the same way, you've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. He said, I'm after your heart. Yet you may, the behavior, nobody may ever see the behavior, but does your heart belong to Jesus? Does your heart look like the king of this kingdom? Again, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but keep the oaths you've made to the Lord. So you swear an oath publicly. Make sure you keep that because people heard that and then they'll be able to see whether or not you keep it, right? It's all visible, all external. But he goes on, he's like, you should be the type of person who's so honest in your character that you never need to swear at all. You say yes and people know you mean yes. And you say no and people know you mean no because you're just an honest person. And he's basically like, how many of you are that honest in your hearts? How many of you? It's always the truth. Not watered down, no spin zone, nothing to make yourself look more favorable, no white lies because it's just too uncomfortable in this moment. How many of you people know if you speak, it's always the truth? You've heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. You know, however they treat you, treat them. But I tell you, don't resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. He says, there's, there's this natural level of if people treat you well, you'll treat them well. And then he's like, doesn't everybody do that? Like, do you have to follow me to be like that? The whole world does that. He's like, tax collectors, the people you despise the most. As many things change from one culture to another, it seems like that one stays the same, right? He's like, even the people that work in the IRS do that. Pagans, they do that. You think that that's what it looks like to be in my kingdom? That you love the people who love you and you hate the people that hate you? No, I tell you, you have to be so transformed by my love and grace in your heart that you love your enemies. That the people who persecute you, beat you, arrest you, throw you in prison, you pray for them. I mean, do you hear the standard that he's holding up here? And in a way, if I was going to summarize that, I would say Jesus wants all of you. Jesus, he's so great as your king that he deserves the whole of who you are. And he's saying the whole of who you are is wrapped up in your heart. Whatever you do or don't do externally, whatever people can or can't see, you can deceive the whole world. You can pretend and you can play and you can put on a mask and you can look great and your heart can be wretched. And, and Jesus is saying, but you can't pretend with me. I see your heart. I know, and I want your heart. I want something deeper than just external behavior. And he says, I want internal. I want your heart. I want your character. Not just what you do, but who you are. And by the way, anytime Jesus says, hey, this is the lesser and I want the greater, it is worth reminding ourselves that the greater always includes the lesser. Jesus is not saying, well, as long as you give me your heart, it doesn't matter what you do. 
He's saying, what you do isn't enough. But if I have your heart, I'll start to change what you do, too. I want internal and external. And I want the external to flow out of the internal. And in chapter 6 there, you may notice how many times he uses the word hypocrite. You hypocrites, you hypocrites, you hypocrites. Because they were doing things externally that looked good, but internally their hearts weren't right. And that's basically the definition of a hypocrite, that who you are doesn't match what you do. That there's a disconnect. You're deceiving people. You're, you're lying and performing in your whole religious life. And Jesus is saying, I don't want that disconnect in my people. I want there to be consistency between I'm changing your heart, and as I change your heart, that changes your behavior. You can fake the behavior, but you can't fake your heart. So this religious righteousness that isn't enough is only about external behavior. Jesus' righteousness, when we're following him, being part of his kingdom, is about internal heart change. It's about the character of who you are. The second thing we said was that that religious righteousness avoids visible sins. And I've hit that a lot. Like the stuff that you could see externally. I can see whether you've done this. Have you murdered or not? Are you keeping that oath or not? It avoids the visible sins that everybody would see because you're trying to make yourselves look good externally. And it avoids the negative. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not break your oath. Like all these things that we don't do. And it's right that you shouldn't do those. But Jesus comes back and he's like, I don't just want you to avoid visible sins. The way I said it last week is Jesus said, I want you to be aggressively gracious. That your main focus isn't avoiding this stuff. Your main focus is pursuing love with others, pursuing forgiveness with others, pursuing reconciliation with others. That, that it's, if you own the shirt and the coat, it's not wrong for you to keep that, Right? Somebody could say, can I please borrow your coat? And you could say, no, this is mine. And legally, you haven't sinned externally. And Jesus is like, but your heart's not good enough for my kingdom. <laughs> I don't just want you to avoid that negative. Like, you didn't steal from them. You didn't take anything that wasn't yours. What you kept was yours. You're good with the law. And Jesus says, but you're not good with me. I want you to be so generous and so loving and so concerned about other people. They ask for this, and you give them twice as much. They ask you to go this far, and you go twice as far. They oppose you and persecute you, and you love them and pray for them. Aggressively gracious, even in the face of people who aren't gracious to you. Pursuing the positive, love, forgiveness, reconciliation, grace. The third thing we said was that with this religious righteousness, that the law is the standard. But with Jesus' righteousness, love is the standard. You know, with religious righteousness, here's what it says, do that, you do that, you're good. And Jesus is like, no, is love driving your heart and your life and your actions, love for people and love for God. The fourth thing we said was that when you do it in religious righteousness, it's because you want to be praised by people. And this is the main part of the first half of chapter 6 where Jesus is like, see, here's, here's part of the reason why the Pharisees and the teachers of the law can't get into my kingdom. When they pray, they just pray so that people will see them and honor them. When they give, so that people will see them and honor them. When they fast, so that people will see them and honor them. And what he basically says is that means their hearts belong to these people and not to God. They desire the praise of people for themselves. That these people, in a sense, have become their God. Because if these people praise them, then they got what they wanted. Their heart wanted that and not God. He's like, and that's not enough for my kingdom. When you want praise for yourself from people, then your heart doesn't belong to the kingdom of God yet. He contrasts that 
right up here in verse 16 in chapter 5 when he said, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. That people who are in Jesus' kingdom, the things they do when they pray and give and fast and every good thing they do in their life is so that God will be praised by people, not them. It's so that God will be glorified. It's not so people will see. And there is a difference, by the way, in praying to be seen. That's wrong. If you pray so that others will see you and be impressed with you and praise you, that's sin. There's a difference in that versus being seen praying. Do you hear the difference there? Praying to be seen. Your motive is that people will see you and praise you. And Jesus says that type of praying is sin. But just being seen praying, when it happens that you let your light shine before others, they see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven, that's a great thing. And do you see again here how it can't just be external behavior? That the external behavior can look exactly the same for religious people who are doing it for their own glory versus followers of Jesus who are doing it for Jesus' glory. Both of them are praying. But these people are praying for themselves so that people will see them. These people are praying for the glory of God so that God will be glorified. And so it's never just the what. It's the why and the how. Like, why are you doing that? How are you doing Are you doing it so that you'll be seen or so that God will be seen? And then we built on that last week and said that the big difference there is who's the source. If self is the source, if you're the source of the good things you're doing, then you're going to get the credit for it. But if God is the source, then he gets the credit. When, when Jesus says God will be praised, God will be glorified for your good work, that can only happen if God's the one producing it, if he's really the source. If you have died to self and you're living by faith in him, if his spirit is the one producing these things in you. So then just keep building on that for number six today. The religious righteousness of the Pharisees that isn't enough for Jesus' kingdom. Your heart treasures the things of this world. And I really never paid attention contextually to the treasure in heaven section until this time, and I just want to point out one thing, and we'll move on to the next. I always have read it kind of by itself as if Jesus is primarily talking about material stuff, money, worldly possessions. Don't store it for yourself treasures on earth where you invest in all this temporary stuff that isn't going to last. Like it's going to be, you're going to be gone someday. It's going to be gone someday. It's unreliable. It's temporary. It's fleeting. Don't invest in that. Invest in the internal purposes of God, the kingdom of God that will last forever and matter forever. And I think that is absolutely part of the application here because it gets to the end he's like you got to choose you can't serve god and money it's got to be one or the other either the things of god or the things of this world but also notice that it comes right on the heels of three straight examples that he gives where he says hey if you do your righteous acts just so people will see you and praise you you've already got your reward But if you do your righteous acts towards your Father in heaven who is unseen, he sees what you're doing, and he will reward you. And so I think part of what he's saying right here is if everything you do is motivated by the praise of people, if you're a people pleaser and you want their affirmation and you want accolades from them and you want to be noticed and and admired and praised for your religious righteousness, then you're storing up treasures on earth. Those are all worldly treasures right now. The praise of man is a treasure on earth. 
He's like, you can either seek that reward and you want the things of this world, including the praise of people in this life, or you can store up treasures in heaven where all that is motivated by God, comes from God, comes out of reliance on God, and your only desires for God to be praised and God to live in you in such a way that your life is pleasing to him and he praises you for what he's produced in you. That's treasures in heaven. And so this religious righteousness is still bound up in the things of this world, the people that your heart wants or treasures the things of this world, whereas Jesus' righteousness, I always do that, don't I? Come over here and act like we're moving on to the next number. Number six on Jesus' side, your heart treasures the things of God. That you want God's glory more than you want your own. And you want praise from God more than you want praise from men. That you're motivated by the kingdom of heaven and for the things of that kingdom and not your kingdom in this world and the things of this world. Number seven, religious righteousness you know, that's just external. You still worry about taking care of yourself. There's still a focus on self. And you see it here in this next section that Jesus goes into. Do not worry about your life. Do not worry about your body. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Can any of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? So do not worry, saying what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans, like the godless people who don't know God at all, they're constantly pursuing all this stuff for themselves. They're chasing it down. And how many of you, Jesus, and how many of you have jumped into the world and you're chasing the exact same things the world's chasing? You're running after the things of the world just as fast as everybody in the world does because that's the real focus of your heart. That your heart wants those things and you want those things because you're trying to give yourself security, pleasure, joy, certainty, comfort, that it's all, it's self-driven, all of that. And you worry, I won't have enough. I won't have enough to take care of myself. I won't have enough to provide for myself. I won't have enough to make myself comfortable. And then Jesus contrasts that with, in my kingdom, when I'm working in your heart, you trust your Father to take care of you. You know, Jesus doesn't say, hey, you don't need any of that in this world. Don't need food, don't need clothes. That's not what he says. He says the difference is, in this perspective, you've got to get that for yourself. That you are your own savior. You are your own provider. This thing depends on you. And so you've got to be driven by worry and anxiety and fear to go get whatever you need or you won't have it. And all of that is simply saying, I don't believe my father loves me the way he says he does. I don't believe that my father will give me what I need. So I better go get it for myself. But Jesus says, when you start to really know your father, when you know how your father loves you, when you know the good gifts that your father gives to his children, when you know that he owns the whole thing, <laughs> it's all his and you're his and he loves you. When you realize that he takes care of the birds and the flowers and he loves you way more than he loves them because you're made in his image. 
You are more valuable than they are because you bear the image of God in a way that they don't. Do you think that your father won't take care of you? Will you trust him? Will you trust him or will you worry? And you can, you can examine Scripture if you want to and come back and we can have a conversation about this, but as far as I can tell, and this is not something I enjoy saying to you because I don't like saying it to me, but as far as I can tell, worry and trust are mutually exclusive. To whatever extent you worry, you're not trusting God to that extent. And to whatever extent you are trusting God, you won't worry. And that doesn't mean that you can't plan, you can't think in certain instances. Sometimes, especially like when you read Proverbs, that there is a wisdom to a certain type of planning. And God, one of the ways C.S. Lewis says, is that we're only to do today's duties today. But that if God gives you something where part of today's duty is planning for the next week, that's okay to plan today if that's today's duty. Does that make sense? So I'm not saying that there's never a place for any type of planning, but I'm saying the majority of what we do is us trying to control things we can't control because we don't trust God to control it. And we worry about outcomes that are yet to come because we imagine those outcomes without imagining the fact that God's going to be there with us. It may be hard, but you won't go through it alone. But worry, we're always imagining ourselves going through it alone. The moment that you start to trust God and you trust that God will be there with you and that God will walk you through it or carry you through it if you need to be carried through it, then you know you can trust him and you don't have to worry about that. And so worry to this extent, you're not trusting God with those things. Trust God to this extent, you won't worry about those things. The other words, I think I've used these before and somebody reminded me this past week that Trust is faith, right? They're the same word in the New Testament. Worry is fear. And so fear and faith are mutually exclusive in that sense. The things that you're afraid of, you're not trusting God. You're not in faith trusting that God will take care of you. And the response when that fear wells up in you is to respond with faith and say, I trust God to handle these things that I'm afraid of. They're too big for me. I should be afraid of them, but they're not too big for him. And he loves me. He's my father. He has this. And so Jesus says, this religious righteousness that doesn't really change your heart, you'll find that you keep worrying. You still worry about taking care of yourself. But when you really know your father in heaven, when you've been connected to him because you're connected to Jesus and you're part of his kingdom, you start to trust your father to take care of you because you're believing his love for you. And you're believing that he really is the king. He has it all, and he's willing to give you what you need, which is exactly where he goes in chapter 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. That you start to realize that when you need something and you come to your Father, he loves you, and he's going to give you what you need. If you, though you're evil, you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Um, I've used this before as a, a little bit of an illustration, but it's happened a couple times lately, and it's reminded me. Um, Sydney, our oldest daughter, she got her salty, savory taste buds from me, and she's also gotten her, uh, I want to make stuff last and not run out and make sure I have enough, so when you know, buy her a bag of her favorite chips, she's not the kid that opens them up and eats the whole bag. She like squirrels it away in her bedroom and hides it somewhere and may leave it so, there so long that the ants find it before she finishes it. But she like running out is her worst nightmare. And that's me too. Just I'm like she got both those things from me. And so this section's hard for me. 
but I'll buy her a bag of chips that she really likes, and she's eating in her bedroom, and I go, and I'm like, can I have a couple of those? Don't eat too many. It's a, it's a, I'm, I'm serious. If you won't eat too many. And it's like, do you know how quickly she has forgotten who gave her the chips? Like where they came from? Why she has them to begin with? And like seriously, you all don't know me that well, but if she runs out, do you think I'm going to buy her another bag? I'm going to buy her another bag. Again, if I eat too many, I'll buy her another bag sooner. But in that moment, she's more worried about keeping that for herself in such a way that she can't trust that her daddy loves her. Right? How many bags of chips are we hoarding in our lives? Worried to let go of the smallest thing. He's like, hey, will you give a little bit of that back to me? And you're like, you better leave enough for me. He's like, where do you think you got it in the first place? Why do you think you're even alive right now? <laughs> because he sustains you by the power of his word at this moment. Every good thing you have, he has given you. Do you think he's going to stop now? He gave his son for you. He has more good things for you than you can even imagine. But he's like, you're so busy hanging on to this bag of chips, like with your hands and your fists closed tight like this. I need open hands so I can pour stuff out on you, and you won't open your hands to me. You can trust your father. You can trust what he has, and you can trust what he gives. He does love you. You are a precious child to him. Number eight. We're running up against the clock, but these are good. I'm going to try to finish them here. In the, the religious righteousness of the Pharisees, you focus on the sin of others and ignore or minimize your own sin. Just listen to these three verses, and I think you can hear it, and it's self-explanatory. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? They've got a speck of sawdust, you've got a plank, and you're acting like this speck of sawdust in their eye is a bigger deal than the plank in your own eye. You want to know why? Because you're minimizing what's wrong with you or maybe ignoring it completely and acting like there isn't a plank in your eye at all, but you're acting like your plank is smaller than their speck, and you want to spend all your energy condemning them and judging them and cutting them down for the speck that they've got in their eye. That you focus on the sin of others, and you ignore or minimize your own sin. Jesus says, how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You're in no position to take that speck out. You can't even see right now because you've got a whole two-by-four in your eye. You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. And so Jesus says the difference here in his kingdom, people who really follow him, and by the way, notice that it's not people who never sin. And it's not people even that just have really small, acceptable sins. It's people who are honest about your own sin. Hey, I got a plank in my eye, and it needs to come out. <laughs> I can't help you and love you the way that I need to. I can't help you deal with that speck of sawdust in your eye until this thing gets out of my eye. It's got to come out first. Honest about your own sin and helpful to others 
in their sin. One of the things we'll spend more time on when we get here, but it gets really misunderstood in this passage, is the, the do not judge section. Sometimes people act like that means that we can't ever say, hey, that doesn't need to be in your eye to anybody. That means there's no judgment whatsoever. And that's not what Jesus says here. He says, just don't be the type of hypocrite that you go ruthlessly after the sawdust in other people's eyes while you've got a plank in your own eye. The type of judgment you should be able to make is this plank's a really big problem in my eye. It needs to come out. And then that sawdust doesn't need to be in your eye either. Let me help you. I'm not judging you to cut you down. I'm not judging you to say, hey, you're worthless now because you got sawdust in your eye. But I am judging the fact that that doesn't need to be there. And it's going to cause problems if we leave it there. Let's get it out. Let's work together to get it out. Let me help you. So the contrast here, righteousness of the Pharisees. You focus on the sin of others and ignore or minimize your own sin righteousness in Jesus' kingdom. You're honest about your own sin and helpful to others in their sin. Righteousness of the Pharisees, you trust religious results. That's what makes you acceptable to God. How are you going to get into the kingdom? Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Look at the great religious things that we did. Look at the spectacular results that we had in our life. Shouldn't we be in your kingdom? That they trust their religious accomplishments and their religious results as the thing that should make them good enough for Jesus' kingdom. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. You did all that stuff, but not out of relationship with me. Yeah, you did all that stuff, but not out of dependence on me and faith in me. I wasn't producing that in you. You were doing that for you. You were doing that to be seen by them. You were doing that because you loved the praise of man, and you've already had your reward. The contrast over here, real righteousness in Jesus' kingdom, you trust your relationship with Jesus. That's what makes you acceptable to God. And you see it there in Jesus' words. You want to know who gets in? When he looks at you and he says, yeah, I know you. You're mine. You belong to the king. You have a relationship with the king. You're accepted in my kingdom because I know you. It's a relationship with Jesus personally and intimately knowing Jesus. And then number 10, Jesus ends with that wise and foolish builders. And I just want you to notice the contrast that he actually makes here. Notice everyone who hears these words of mine. This is the house built on rock, but also the house built on sand. Everyone hears these words of mine. The difference of who gets in and who doesn't get in is not do they hear or not. And this, this I, we're ending here because this is hard for us. Like you're here and you're hearing Jesus' words this morning. Some of you sit in church every single week and you're hearing the word of God in the Bible, but Jesus says everyone hears these words of mine and puts them into practice. Course, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them in to practice. 
you could say Jesus is saying, it's not just a question of do you hear me? Do you listen to me? Do you actually live out what I say? Are you changed by my words? So the religious righteousness of the Pharisees hears Jesus' words. The Pharisees heard everything Jesus said. They, they intentionally sat around all the time just so they could try to trap him in his words. Like they were listening, like, ooh, what question can we ask today to kind of twist things around and get him to say what we want him to say? But they were always hearing him. Here's Jesus' words, but don't ever change. Verse, the real righteousness in Jesus' kingdom. Here's Jesus' words and are changed by them. That what he says, our hearts respond in faith. Our hearts submit to him. Our hearts trust that he really does teach as one who had authority. That there's no teacher like Jesus. And so as you look at these two lists, I just want you to know that list on the left, like it is what is natural to us. Like in our flesh, in our human nature, apart from the work of the Spirit. And you're going to see things in you on that list that it's like, yeah, that's the way I've lived my life. That's even the way that I've tried to pursue good things. When you see that, it doesn't mean, hey, you're done for. What it means is Jesus is saying, now repent of that. If you were to flip back to chapter 4, do this real quickly with me. Just a few verses before where we started today. We started in verse 18. This is verse 17, and I wanted to leave it till right now. So Jesus starts teaching. Here's what he starts with. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Now when the king shows up and he says, Hey, my kingdom is coming right now. It's really close. It's time. When he comes, like we would think, if we're living in this left list, we think, okay, the king's going to show up and he's going to evaluate everybody. He's going to say, who's the best that I can get for my kingdom? Right? Who, who's the holiness and the most righteous? Who's the most qualified? I'm going to come. Like, we would think his message would be, get yourself together. Show me how good you are. Perform really well. Come do a job interview with me. And if you qualify, I'll let you in. Those are the people I'm looking for for my kingdom. It's what we expect. But when the king shows up and the first word out of his mouth about his kingdom is repent, you know one of the things he's telling you? I know you're not good enough. <laughs> right? Like if the first word is repent, he's saying, look, I know that I'm looking at a whole bunch of people who can't get in, who are headed the wrong way, but I'm calling you, turn around and come back to me. I know you're not good enough for my kingdom. But then the second thing, when he shows up and he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near, he's saying, I accept people who aren't good enough. When they admit they're not good enough when they repent and turn from themselves and turn to me. You want to know who gets into my kingdom? It's not the people who live up to my standards because nobody does. It's the people who admit they can't and they come to me instead. He said, my kingdom's a whole new kingdom. It's not a kingdom based on merit. It's not a kingdom based on accomplishment. It is not transactional. You can't earn it. You can't deserve it. You can't get it that way. 
but that doesn't mean nobody's getting in. Everyone who wants in, if they will come to me, I'll let them in. So repent and come to me. And so when you see yourself in this left list, it is okay if that humbles you. It should humble you. Right? The gospel of the kingdom, the gospel of Jesus, it has these two great effects on us. Everywhere where we're proud or self-satisfied or self-righteous or self-reliant, everywhere we think, hey, I'm doing pretty good, I might measure up, it humbles us there. Jesus shows up and he says, the more proud you are of your righteousness, the more I need to break you. So here, the most righteous of all, you're not good enough for my kingdom. And he humbles every expression of self in you. And then every place where you're broken, every place where you know you aren't good enough, every place where you're desperate, every place where you're ready to repent and admit that you don't measure up and that you can't do it on your own and that you're hopeless on your own, every single one of those places where he humbled you over here, he exalts you over, he lifts you up, he gives you hope. He humbles you when you're self-reliant, but he gives you hope when you rely on him. He says, here, I'll do this in you. I'll change your heart. I'll live in you. I'll be the source of your good deeds. Everything I want from you, I'll give to you. But you have to come to him. You have to trust him. You have to rely on him. You will not make your heart like this on your own. But if the Spirit of God starts to open your eyes and you see who Jesus is, and you see how your Father loves you, and you see what he has done to come and find you and get you and make you his own, and you start to believe his love for you, his love starts to melt your heart. And his grace starts to work in you and change you, and he makes you more and more like his son. And that's what I pray that you see in this time that we spend in Jesus' words here. It is not a call for you to do more and better on your own. It's a call for you to stop doing it all on your own. It's a call for you to trust him, trust Jesus that he's more, trust Jesus that he's better, trust Jesus that he has what you need, and he'll give it to you, and he'll do it in you. And so I'm going to pray that for us right now, and then we're going to worship him together. We're going to have a time of prayer down here if, if you want to pray with somebody about what Jesus is saying to your heart this morning. But let's pray together right now. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for the truth of your word. Help us to see the things that you want us to see this morning and change us in the ways that we need to be changed. Draw us closer to Jesus. Strengthen and deepen our faith as only you can. Father, we ask it because you promised to give. We're seeking because you promised that you will let us find. We're knocking and we ask you to open this door. We believe that you are a good father who gives these good spiritual gifts. Please give them now by your grace in our hearts and in our lives and in your church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Stand and sing with us. Come and pray if you need to pray with somebody.